Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Anna. This is the final episode in our three-part series called Hard. If you missed either of the last two episodes, I definitely recommend going back and taking a listen first. And I want to give you a heads up that in this episode, we get pretty detailed about sex, like more than usual on the show. So hold on to your hats. I absolutely know that there is a sense of loss and grieving that comes when you lose physical function. So if you could previously have an erection and have penetrative sex with your partner in a really fulfilling way and you can't anymore, the grief and the loss from that is totally legitimate. But that doesn't have to mean that something's wrong with you. It just means it's time to learn how to have sex differently. Carson Tuller knows both the loss and learning that comes with a big change in physical function. Nine years ago, he was in an accident that left him paralyzed from the chest down. Do you, as somebody who takes Viagra sometimes, do you identify as having erectile dysfunction? That's so funny because I actually don't, even though I absolutely do. I think it's because I know it's a symptom of paralysis, so I 100% do. It's just a part of the package. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. If you were speaking to somebody who uh, who has struggled with erectile dysfunction and who has um, has sort of turned inward and away from romantic connection because of the pressure of that, um, what would you say? I would say, let's name this. Let's name what's happening here. And I would say, you are experiencing the impact of internalized ableism. That's what you're experiencing, which is adding judgment to your physical function. Because what's so, what is true, is that your penis works the way that it does and the way that it doesn't. And there's nothing good or bad about that. There's nothing wrong or right about that. And then I would tell this individual, you can have a better sex life than you have ever experienced or ever had without the use of your penis or without it working and popping up the minute you think about something. There are so many ways to have sex and it would be of great benefit to you to consider that sex is so much more than you've ever considered it to be. I'm Anna Sale and this is Hard, a series from Death, Sex, and Money about Viagra. I had to go to the bathroom and put cold water on my erection. Erectile dysfunction. Sometimes you shouldn't have an erection. And the ways we do and don't talk about sex, relationships, and our bodies. I try to keep things as confusing and messy as possible so that you can't pin me down. For the past few weeks, we've been hearing from people who have experienced erectile dysfunction and from people who were involved in creating Viagra, the first pill to treat ED. In the past quarter century, millions of individual sex lives have been impacted by Viagra and drugs like it. And as we heard in the last episode, the messaging in Viagra's ads evolved over the years and became less about the problem of ED and more about the idea that Viagra can help you have better sex. Sex, though, is complicated. And there are a lot of parts of a sex life that Viagra has nothing to do with. Producer Katie Bishop is here with me. Hi, Katie. Hi. Yeah, this is something that I heard over and over again from psychologists and sex therapists that I talked with, including Dr. Jen Bossio. She practices in Ontario, Canada. Certainly Viagra doesn't 
teach people what are the ingredients to having this really enjoyable sex life, like good communication, like novelty, like not sticking to one particular sexual script, but kind of switching it up now and then. So you might remember from earlier in the series that before medical interventions like Viagra were available, ED was mostly seen as a psychological issue, and people were referred to therapists or couples counselors for help. But that couldn't really solve an equipment problem for people who had underlying medical issues, like those stemming from prostate cancer, for example. Then, as more was learned about how erections worked, ED became something that doctors could treat with drugs. But this left a lot of therapists concerned that all these other really critical elements of a healthy relationship and sex life that you might talk about if you did see a counselor could be sort of skipped over if you've got this pill that can offer a quick fix. I think there is really good evidence to suggest that perhaps something like Viagra and therapy in combination might be really helpful. This pill might help, but what might be even better is if we look at all parts of you, the brain, the body, and your relationship. And then from there, we get a really good idea of what's going on, what's contributing to these sexual health problems. And we start building up tools that, yes, might help with a more enjoyable sexual response, but really it's also helping reducing stress, learning ways to manage the stress of living a difficult human life. It's learning tools to help manage mood. It's learning tools to help manage anger, assert yourself in relationships, build healthy relationships. And all of those are the foundations to really good mental health. There's a ton of these psychosocial elements of having this good sex life that a pill can't address. I was noticing an effect on Viagra, and that was really helpful, but that wasn't fixing the core problem I was having, which was feeling like shit or feeling like nothing. Octavia Leona Koner is 30 and lives in New York. About 10 years ago, she says she started struggling with her mental health. She's a trans woman and had started hormone replacement therapy, and then her doctors prescribed her an SSRI. When she started experiencing ED, she asked her doctors about Viagra. I think the thing that caused the most erectile dysfunction, if it was not the SSRIs, it was sort of the constant like verbal and physical assault I was experiencing as a trans woman, giving me extreme anxiety and depression and PTSD. I was like, you know, really going through it. It was the early 2010s, which were like, you know, not the hardest time to be a trans feminine person for sure, but definitely not the easiest time. And did your interest in medication like Viagra, was it prompted at all by any of your partner's reactions to you? Um, I mean, you know, you're in your early 20s and you're sleeping around and there's people are going to be like, hey, why can't you get hard? Because I think there is that sort of idea that if you're in your early 20s, you're going to be able to get hard fast and keep it. Um, Like virility and youth and all these other things are just like, if you can't do this, then it's noticeable. Yeah. And what did you notice when you started taking Viagra? How did your body work differently? I was able to maintain an erection easier and or achieve an erection easier. So I did notice a change in the efficiency for my erections, but I like I noticed that, but still was very much like, mm, maybe if the problem is medication, I shouldn't have to fix it with medication. Maybe actually what the solution is 
is that I skill build and learn how to deal with my problems in a way that doesn't super require SSRIs all the time or different SSRIs. Did you discontinue taking Viagra? Eventually, yeah. I've since done it occasionally, um, especially at times of like high stress or at times where I'm maybe on different medication. I uh, tried taking it recently, for example, because I was on medication that I think was negatively affecting my, I'm going to rephrase that, not negatively affecting, but I was on medication that was making it difficult to achieve and maintain an erection. Mm -hmm. And so I had tried it again recently and it worked fine. Um, Octavia, I want to pause and just talk about words for a minute um, because we've been using the term erectile dysfunction. Is that a term that you're comfortable using? Um, I mean, I think that's why I keep stopping myself when I say erectile dysfunction, because I, I understand that it is a sort of direct descriptor of like dysfunctional erections. Um, but I, I think I'd rather, I, I like, I, I try in my best, in my best, in my like most saintly of days, I try my hardest <laughs> to just describe the mechanics of a situation, uh, rather than using perhaps words that people associate with like judgments such as like dysfunction. Like if you hear someone's dysfunctional or something's dysfunctional, I think that is like, you know, not the most savory of words one could use. Mm -hmm. I don't really want to use that language because I think that language will inform my own feelings. And I don't want to feel bad um, about not getting hard sometimes. How do you think about that term erectile dysfunction? I don't know. I kind of, I, personally, I prefer to say floppy dick. Do you know what I mean? Like, let's let's be, let's be bring a little bit of humor into it. Erectile dysfunction sounds like, you know, something that, you know, might happen in a factory. Oh, my God, <laughs> the cranes won't come down. We've been erectile dysfunction. Connor Crichton is in his early 40s now, but he started experiencing erectile difficulties in his teens. He remembers vividly the first time he wasn't able to maintain an erection. He was 17 and having sex for the first time. I don't know if I technically lost my virginity then. You know, it was, it was, a, it was an interesting thing where I kind of, I had an erection for part of the experience and then lost the erection. Uh-huh. And um, so for me, I was like, oh, shit, um, am, am I um, virgin-ish? Or <laughs> um, did I lose it a bit? Or you, you know did what I mean? I so. <laughs> Did part of it like, float away? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I didn't know what to make of it. And and um, what did you think was happening inside your body? Oh my god! I thought I thought I was defective. I and uh, it was it was horrific. It kind of it completely. I mean, I was always quite anxious. I, I sometimes say that I feel like I came out of the womb chewing my nails. <laughs> and it was clearly like anxiety was a big part of my ED. But then what would happen is that, you know, sometimes I would meet someone who I really liked and and they liked me. And then I would almost, you know, avoid going further with it because I just felt like, oh, fuck, like I can't, um, I like I can't. I can't face the potential humiliation of not being able to get it up for someone who I really like. Mm. So on those moments, I would sometimes kind of um, then go home with someone who I didn't like as much. Did you ever have a partner shame you for not being able to perform in the way that she thought you ought to? 
Oh, God, yeah. But that was back in the days when I used to date alcoholics. Um, I, but I mean, those relationships were also just a reflection of where I was at that time. But yeah, there, there was, there were, I remember one partner, in fact, like just sort of, we were, we were having sex and she just sort of stopped me and she goes, you're just not brave enough. Oh. <laughs> Something like this. I'd stopped the sex and I, I, I don't think we lasted very much longer after that. I, that would kind of ruin the mood, I would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of, right? Yeah. yeah. More than a fart. Connor eventually started taking Viagra. He says he first stole a few from his dad's sock drawer. And then in his mid-20s, he asked his doctor for a prescription. The conversation was very brief. I just said, yeah, I sometimes get erection problems. It it was just like, is it possible for you to prescribe me something? And um, yeah, he did. And didn't really, you know, he sort of didn't really ask an awful lot about it. You know, I think he, like he checked my heart and checked my blood pressure. You know, things like this, but... um, there was no, there was no question about like, are you anxious or are you stressed out or do you have problems or anything like that. Connor told me he typically used Viagra at the start of a relationship to build up his confidence and then stop using it. But then in his thirties, he decided he didn't want to take it anymore. I mean, this is also when I began to meditate and when I began to kind of take my mental health seriously. And part of that was just sort of allowing myself to be. Um, you know, whatever lover showed up, mm. I was okay with that. Mm. Um, I was becoming better, like, if I didn't have an erection, been able to say, oh, hey, like, you know, little things ago, just say, oh, hey, look, um, I'm kind of just a bit nervous. Can we, do you mind if we hold off to the next time? You know, things like this. I became sort of better at saying that. Mm-hmm. And, and um, that helped a lot, actually. That helped a lot. I I generally found that that was always really well received. Do you think it was helpful for you to have Viagra available when you were in your early 20s and trying to figure out how to have sex? Um, I mean, I mean, yes, like definitely it was it was helpful in that. Maybe I would have turned away. I, I don't know what what else I would have done at that time. Um, but I think like kind of having having an environment where people could talk about anxiety and mental health issues in young men would have been much better than having Viagra. Um, it was very useful at, a, at helping to tackle the problem. But the, the real curing that I needed, I just didn't feel that there was anything available at that stage. I think also you got to consider that sort of when you are taking these like uh, performance enhancing pills, you're not really in your body. Mm. You're not really in the moment. Like if it's all about performance, you're just, you're missing everything. You're missing all the nuances of sex. There's something extremely, I want to call it capitalistic about like performance enhanced sexual interactions because it's very much like result orientated. Um, as my more mature understanding of sex is that it's sort of, it's sex is, is a much more copacetic and, and enjoyable experience when, when it is about the experience rather than a result. Coming up. You know, I will tell you that I have so much sex right now that does not include me having an erect penis. Um, mm. And it's just really fucking fantastic. 
we hear more from Carson Tooler about exploring new ways of finding pleasure, while also taking drugs to have his body work the way it once did. This is Hard, from Death, Sex, and Money. I'm Anna Sale. Dr. Gail Wyatt is a clinical psychologist and sex therapist at UCLA. She's been conducting research and seeing patients in private practice for 50 years. I don't think that penetration has to be the only method of sexual pleasure or gratification. Dr. Wyatt told me that when she sees patients, she wants to really understand the details of their sexual history and their current sex lives. But when Viagra became available in the late 90s, she says she noticed a shift in what some of her patients wanted. They would only see the the absence of a a firm erection as the issue. A general that I saw (laughs) said that when he wanted erection, he wanted an immediate rock-hard erection. And I said, you know, it's not like you're saluting. (laughs) That's not how the body works. So a lot of People just wanted to be, they wanted a technician. Just give it to me. I don't prescribe medicine, so I obviously wouldn't be the person to do that. Mm -hmm. And as a couple grows older, I think their expectations need to change. Some couples do that begrudgingly, but they, you know, they find their way. It's not easy. Uh, You know, it's like saying, well, my my partner has uh, only one arm. So what do I do? You know, do I begrudge the fact that that's gone? Or do I find uh, new value in the partner, no matter what my partner has or doesn't have? I hate the idea that disabled people think they're relegated to like poor sex lives. And that also translates to um, able-bodied people because if you have the privilege of aging in this life, you will become disabled. I called up Carson Tooler at home in Salt Lake City. He's from there originally and moved back there from New York after ending a relationship last year. He works as a coach and professional speaker. He often gets hired by companies to talk about resilience and empowerment and disability. If I'm talking about, you know, ableism, anti-ableism, disability, um, in corporate settings, they're not usually eager to hear about, like, how my penis works. Carson became disabled in 2013. He was at a trampoline park with his family when he landed in a foam pit and shattered one of his vertebrae. He was 23 years old, paralyzed from the upper chest down and newly out of the closet. Had you had sex with a man before your accident? No. Nope. I had only kissed a man or held a man's hand. I, when I was coming out, I was so deliberate because homosexuality or an LGBTQ identity does not mesh well with the Mormon experience. And so I had, I was very deliberate about not doing anything that would, that I would regret later. Um, And the irony is, is that I, you know, chose not to have sex with my then boyfriend and then became paralyzed and um, never, and I will never know now what it's like to have sex with an able body. But yeah, the irony is that sometimes I do regret that, (laughs) the decision to wait. What, have you always, since your accident, been able to uh, achieve erection? I mean, yes and no. So I can achieve manual erection. 
on my own, just by manual stimulation. The only time that that erection is hard enough to be functional would be, and I mean like um, functional for penetration, for example, um, would be in the morning later on in the day or in any other moment, I am using uh, Viagra to sustain an erection for sex. And when you take Viagra for sex, does it does it feel good from the physical sensation in your penis? No. Nope. I don't have much sensation in my penis, actually. I have some um, here and there with, like, certain kinds of touch, certain kinds of pressure. But my penis itself does not have much sensation. So if you don't um, feel, feel it in your penis, uh, why do you take Viagra? to have penetrative sex? Yeah, I do it for a couple of reasons. One is for my partner, right? So if we're going to have penetrative sex, then um, having, uh, like using my own penis is um, both exciting, it's arousing, it's validating. Um, It helps me feel like I'm in touch with my body still because, you know, there are some disabled people who, are born with a disability and I happen to acquire a disability. So there's still large parts of my identity that are linked to how I used to feel, how my body used to function. Um, And so I feel like me, I feel like myself, I feel at home when I'm in touch with that part of me or when I can see that my penis is working the way that it used to. Um, So it's a psychological piece. I find that so much of the sexual experience is deeply psychological. Even seeing myself, again, kind of erect or having, you know, penetrative sex and ejaculating is all incredibly arousing, even if it doesn't feel the same way that it did previously. When you, when you think about who it's for when you're, with, when you're having sex with a partner and yeah. you are penetrating your partner... Do you feel like it's more arousing that you are pleasing your partner or is it arousing to look down and see that your body is capable of this? It's both of those pieces. Mm-hmm. It's definitely both of those pieces. Um, the visual of it um, and also like the connectedness, right? There's something about, for me, penetrative sex that is um, connected, right? Like parts of bodies inside of other bodies um, is both connected and intimate for me. So I love that piece. Say you're with a partner and you have had, you've had sex, penetrative sex, you've topped and you're up for feeling more. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you ask for? I ask for um, any kind of stimulation in the places that I feel. So I, I, don't, I don't have a lot of skin sensation anymore. I think probably 85% of like the real estate of my body, like my actual epidermis is no longer sensitive. So when I am aroused or am in like a sexual experience, all of that becomes like heightened and incredibly sensitive and responsive to touch. So um, 
any kind of stimulation, like just rubbing hands across my chest when I have chest hair or even um, a little bit of like um, stubble on my beard or on my neck, especially on the back of my neck. Sometimes I, I will intentionally make sure that I have hair because the sensation is all that much higher and intense. So um, I will ask for a partner to like rub a hand, like an open palm across the top of my chest that always literally kind of makes me gasp with pleasure. Uh, uh-huh. um, uh, sometimes kind of like actually the inside of this is, I'm telling you, this is all sounds so I'm like listening to me say this and wondering what abled people must feel, but like, when it comes time for me to actually experience the height of pleasure, um, I usually am asking or training a partner to kiss my, the kind of like the front of my neck um, up to my ear. And while they're on my ear to take their fingers and run it against my scalp on the same side of that ear. And there's something about that combination that literally takes me from like, if I'm like at a six (laughs) of pleasure and arousal to like a nine and a 10 where I am with that sequence and staying there, I am uh, climaxing within probably a couple of minutes. And then um, if a partner just stays there and continues to do that, I will continue to stay in that climax space um, for as long as that partner is there or until it becomes unbearable for me. Uh, and when you say like climax space, is it, is it orgasm? Is that what it feels like? Yeah. Yeah. It feels, it feels different from how I experienced orgasm as an abled person, but um, it like, it feels like the, the way I've explained it before is it feels like there's sunlight in my veins. Um mm. Like everything inside me turns uh, white and euphoric. My whole body kind of um, disappears into this state of pleasure. It feels like I'm injected with pleasure down to my toes um, in a way that is like um, pretty indescribable. I used to think that disabled sex and sex as a paralyzed man was always going to be somehow a demotion or a step down from the pleasure that I would have experienced otherwise. Um, But paralysis, like the pleasure I feel during sex, there is no piece of that that feels inadequate or not enough or that I leave wanting more of. Um, It is completely and entirely fulfilling. Um, And it also lasts so much longer than my orgasms used to be when I was able so I can orgasm now for like much longer periods of time and repeatedly because of how my body works now. Hmm. And it sounds like also like how you've practiced and gotten to know your body. Yes. Yep. hundred um, percent. I was struck. You said um, if I'm, if I'm instru- instructing or training, I think you said, if you're telling, you, mm, if you're basically training, yeah. training a partner what to do, um, that kind of communication. Um, do you do you think that being able to be so uh, clear and direct about what you like and what brings you pleasure um, 
Do you think you would have been able to communicate like that in sex had you not become paralyzed? I think I wouldn't have because I would have had no need to, right? Like I would have had a feeling penis and I would have found a male partner who probably knew uh, or had um, <laughs> a natural inclination to focus on my penis, mm-hmm. right? And so I, I I just would have, I think, assumed, oh, this is how sex is. It's very like genital centric, um, and this is just how it goes. You you know, A plus B equals C, and then you both <laughs> climax, and that's what we call sex. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So so now because none of that works on me, right? Someone will go like go to town on parts of my body that I don't feel very much of, and so I have to say, well, if I'm going to experience. Um, pleasure, which is my intention here, and connection, uh, then we're going to have to do that in a different way. And that's going to require exploration and a lot of communication because there's no way that an individual could kind of just deduce how I'm going to get off. It just, it's different for me. So you're sounds like you're sexually active now. You're single and sexually active. Is that right? That is correct. I would like to be more sexually active. I've been working through my own internalized ableism, Anna. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of like leaving a relationship, like a monogamous relationship where I just didn't have to explain this shit to my partner. We could just be together get each other off, have a good time. And now it's like, it feels exhausting to think about a hookup or anything like that because of everything we're talking about. Both like, I have to come in thinking, okay, what does this person know or not know about my sexual function? What questions might they have? Um, I'm going to be a disappointment to them because they're going to want to just like get in, get off, get out. And that doesn't work for me. Or, you know, is this person even the kind of person that wants to take the time to learn how to get me off. So sometimes that whole piece just feels so emotional and heavy and too much that I'm just like, ah, forget it, you know? Yeah. But it's an investment. And so I'm constantly talking with myself and I'm like, like, look, bitch, if you want sex, this is how it's going to work, right? (laughs) Like, (laughs) this is how it has to go down. You're going to have to have a conversation and like, it's worth it. So like, just do the work and put in the investment that's going to, pay off oh that's oh look bitch this is an investment that's gonna be a a mantra that i come back to for many parts of my life carson you've given me a gift that is carson tuller in salt lake city thank you to everyone who shared their experiences as part of this series If you missed any of the previous episodes, I'd highly recommend going back and taking a listen. And if you want to tell us about your own experiences with Viagra or ED, write to us at depthsexmoney at wnyc.org. This series was reported and produced by Katie Bishop. Andrew Dunn composed the music, in addition to mixing our episodes, as he always does so wonderfully. The rest of our team includes Afi Yellow-Duke and Emily Botine, and we want to welcome our new producer, Zoe Azule, who joined us starting this week. Our intern is Gabriela Santana. And special thanks to Mike Berry, Michelle Shu, Theodore Kuslan, Andrea Latimer, Kim Nowacki, Dahlia Dagger, Caitlin Pierce, and to Radiolab's Lulu Miller, who suggested that we reach out to Carson. 
Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported podcast. Please make a contribution today at deathsexmoney.org slash donate. If you are new to our show, we have a starter kit of our favorite episodes. Check it out at deathsexmoney.org. And we also have a weekly newsletter. You can sign up for that at deathsexmoney.org slash newsletter. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.